This is Book TV's Afterwards podcast. This week, journalist Joel Pollack discusses his book, Red November, and asks, will the country vote for Trump or red socialism? He's interviewed by the editor-at-large of Reason Magazine, Matt Welch. So we're going to get into the what of the book for most of this conversation, but let's start uh, with the why for a moment. What motivated you to write this? Who is the intended audience and what instrumental purpose do you wish this Red November to serve? Well, I became interested in the leftward drift of the Democratic Party because it seemed to me to be quite radical and bad, not just for the Democratic Party, but for the country. I had been a Democrat in my college years and shortly thereafter, and I became more conservative over time before becoming a Republican, joining Breitbart, and so forth. But even then, I retained an empathy for the kind of utopian thinking that the left does. I'm not a utopian myself, but I do think that many Democrats with whom I disagree on policy issues and ideological issues are coming from a very good place. They want to make the world better. And what struck me about the direction of the Democratic Party was that it is taking that party in such an extreme direction that it risks falling over the cliff and essentially pulling the rest of the country with us. One of the most important things that changed my mind about politics was my experience for seven years in South Africa, seeing that left-wing government mismanage the country after apartheid. And I came back to the United States with the lessons of that experience very prominent in my mind. And they really guided my thinking about American politics. And I see the American left making many of the same mistakes, whether it's, regard, uh, whether it's identity politics or state-driven economic policy, radical restructuring of our energy policy, the emphasis on race, all of those things in my mind, are not just bad policies, but they can actually be extremely destructive of democracy as we've known it. And so I wanted to get into the Democratic Party primary to document this process, to examine the candidates, examine the issues, and if possible, not just to document what was going on, but also to warn people about how dangerous this was, both to the political fortunes of Democrats and to the country itself. Now, in those primaries, the person who won was not the person making the most bold kind of progressive claims on economic management uh, or of on race or on everything that you mentioned, the the moderate one uh, in this. So how does that, you say pretty provocatively in your book, that if Joe Biden wins in November, it'll be the first socialist presidency. And I think one of the uh, immediate reactions by a lot of people who don't follow politics as closely necessarily as you and I do on a day-to-day basis will be like, Joe Biden? Socialist? This dude's been around forever and he hasn't been a socialist. So how do you explain um, how your thesis matches up to Biden actually winning those primaries? So... Let's look at what Joe Biden has done since securing the nomination. I write about this in the book, the moment where he came out in front of a national audience on Super Tuesday, having won all these victories. And he was at that moment, the 
effective nominee of the party. There was no way Bernie Sanders was going to recover. And it was really a remarkable few days. Right up until the South Carolina primary on February 29th, Bernie Sanders had completely dominated the early primary states. He won the first three popular votes in the first three primary or caucus states. No candidate from any party had ever done that before. And even on the morning of Super Tuesday, the New York Times and others were saying that Bernie Sanders was the likeliest to come out the winner that night and overall. Joe Biden rallied the establishment of the Democratic Party behind him. And in an extraordinary 48 hours, many of his rivals dropped out and endorsed him. And the party swung behind him. After winning South Carolina with the help of James Clyburn and that endorsement, he then won on Super Tuesday, not just in the South, where the predominance of African-American voters was always thought to give Joe Biden a little bit of an advantage, given that he was so closely associated with Barack Obama. But he also won in Minnesota, Amy Klobuchar's home state. He won in Massachusetts, Elizabeth Warren's home state. He swept. And I think that was partly because Democratic voters understood who they were being told to vote for. And since the party was signaling to them, this is the candidate you want. Now, Joe Biden doesn't call himself a moderate. It's important to note that. He was asked in April 2019, right before he got into the campaign, whether he was a moderate. And he said words to the effect of, I wish I had been called a moderate for most of my political career. It would have been easier to get elected and reelected in Delaware. I've just been an Obama-Biden Democrat. He's just been a party man. Now, Jill Biden, his wife, does use the word moderate, but Biden himself does not. But since the primary, since that Super Tuesday win, instead of following the usual pattern and moving back toward the center and trying to frame his pitch for a general election. Joe Biden has been moving further and further to the left, and he's been saying things that are actually rather extraordinary. He called for, quote, revolutionary institutional changes. That was in a May 11th podcast with Andrew Yang. In that same podcast, he talked about revolution, which interesting was, interestingly was also a word we saw on the first night of the Democratic National Convention. One of the pre-taped videos had someone talking about revolution. Now, if you wanted to send a moderate signal, you wouldn't use terms like that. That's a Bernie Sanders term. It's not a Joe Biden term. Biden's also spoken several times about fundamentally transforming America. Over and over again, we hear, he said the coronavirus, for example, was an opportunity for fundamentally transforming America. Joe Biden has been using that kind of rhetoric, and he's been moving further and further to the left. He's embraced the Green New Deal, for example. The only difference with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Joe Biden is that he gives the country until 2035, she gave the country until 2030, and so on and so on. There's almost no difference anymore between the platform of Joe Biden and the platform of Bernie Sanders. In fact, they're calling it the Biden-Sanders Biden unity platform. So this extraordinary move to the left as we get closer to a general election signals that Joe Biden is moving left, but also that his party is moving left. And you don't have to take my word for it. The Washington Post has written several articles about it. Uh, 538.com, the independent polling and statistical analysis website, said that Joe Biden, if elected, would be the most liberal president in the history of the country. Biden himself has said things like that. Barack Obama said Biden would be the most progressive in history. And Bernie Sanders, I think, has said most progressive since Franklin Delano Roosevelt. You know, Roosevelt sort of envisioned as the kind of outer boundary a reassuring example that they're not going to go too far. But Franklin Delano Roosevelt was against public sector unions, and he was actually rather moderate compared to what the Democrats are proposing now. And then Barack Obama sort of let the cat out of the bag in July when he spoke at the John Lewis funeral. And he said that when Democrats win, they're going to eliminate the filibuster. 
They're going to look at statehood for Washington, D.C., possibly Puerto Rico. They're going to talk about passing amnesty for illegal aliens right away, according to Chuck Schumer. So there's this plan to roll ahead with these massive changes. Joe Biden has signed on to that agenda, and he's speaking that rhetoric. It doesn't seem that he's quite in control of that agenda. He's probably being pushed in that direction. Certainly, there seem to be a lot of people pulling levers behind the scenes. But Joe Biden, it turns out, is the most left-wing major nominee that we've ever seen in this country, despite a 50-year career almost of just being a guy who gets along with everybody, shakes hands, slaps backs in the back room and appears at public events, that sort of thing. He has really become the candidate of the most left-wing Democratic Party that we've seen since 1972 and maybe since well before then. You referenced the Democratic Convention. I recall the 2016 Democratic Convention where you and I both were at, which is a pretty dramatic affair uh, sometimes. Uh, A lot of duct tapes on mouths and things like that. Um, Yeah. uh, Bernie Sanders and his people spent a whole lot of time working on the platform. There's big, uh, big sort of uh, uh, struggles over things to make it a much more Bernieite platform, particularly on economics, more so than on, let's say, foreign policy or civil liberties or criminal justice stuff. But it was like a lot of Bernieomics got in that platform. Um, so there was a lot of discussion back then, particularly uh, among conservatives, of saying, sure, Hillary Clinton might have seemed like a moderate at various times, but she's just signed on to this, the most radical platform in history. And she, in fact, is uh, going to be, you know, the most, we have a Flight 93 election in the famous words of the famous essay from the Claremont uh, Institute. Um, uh, and so, like, we have to stop this socialism from taking over. My question is, um, given that history, if that's, uh, if that's a fair rendering of it, do conservatives run the risk, and do you run the risk in, in this, of catastrophizing, of, of, of boy who cried wolf-ing um, to Democrats? Democrats have been hearing conservatives call them socialists forever, and does, do we run the risk of uh, having people tune it out, and, uh, and even, you know, even precisely at the moment when the actual platform uh, is more left-leaning on economics than it ever has been? No, I think that every election since 2008, in a sense, has been an existential election for the conservatives and for the country in general. Because since 2008, Democrats have offered nominees whose agenda is not to run the country better, but to change the country. And this is very different from the elections of 1996, 2000, 2004. Those were contentious elections. And both parties like to point to the extreme wings of the other side and say, this is what you're getting if you vote for this candidate. They're, you know, very, it's very nice to have a swell guy like Joe Biden running, but you're really getting Bernie Sanders. There are a couple of differences now that actually make the Flight 93 election even more of a Flight 93 election this time around. First of all, there's the carnage in the cities. It was one thing to tell Americans that Democrats believed in tearing down the entire order, the institutions, the history of the country. Now we can see it. It's happened. It's happening. They're tearing down not just Confederate statues and Confederate flags, which had already begun before 2016, but they're tearing down George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Ulysses S. Grant. Abolitionist statues are being vandalized. The Black Civil War soldiers in Shaw's 54th Regiment, that memorial was vandalized. We're seeing an assault on history itself. And the other thing that's different is 
Bernie Sanders was an outlier in 2016. Now he has established a new norm for the party. The major candidates of the Democratic primary, and I talk about this, all adopted Sanders' positions. The, the one exception was Biden didn't go all in for Medicare for all. He wants Medicare as a choice. Effectively, and I've seen this argued quite convincingly, Biden's policy is the same because if you lower the Medicare eligibility age to 60, you're effectively going to put private insurance out of business eventually anyway, and then you have only one option, which is Medicare for all. And the Biden people aren't giving up on Medicare for all. Their plan, as Bernie Sanders said quite openly this week, was once Biden wins, we're going to push for Medicare for all regardless. But all of the major contenders and some of the front runners included uh, people who, who adopted these positions, all of them signed on to the Green New Deal. They signed on to Medicare for all. Elizabeth Warren, who briefly led the field, proposed a wealth tax on Americans. Uh, Kamala Harris, who is now the running mate for Joe Biden, not only proposed or co-sponsored the Green New Deal and Medicare for all, but also said that she would do away with the filibuster. So all of these radical positions are being staked out openly. And now you have a supporting cast of members of Congress who are openly declaring themselves to be socialists. The most dominant ideological character in the Democratic Party today is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She's the one who first introduced the Green New Deal. And she's a democratic socialist. And she has built and expanded a group of candidates, a cadre, if you will, of, of candidates that are openly socialist and believe in tearing down the old system and putting up their new system. And you can see the results of these policies in places like California. This is what ultimately made me more conservative, seeing the results of policies I once believed in. But take the Green New Deal, for example. We've got an early version of it in California where the state has mandated a move to renewable energy sources like solar and wind. Well, what happened during a heat wave in August? We had high demand in the system and the solar cells couldn't kick in because there was cloud cover over the desert. The wind power was unavailable. A thousand megawatts of it were unavailable because it was very calm. There wasn't enough wind to keep the turbines going. And so Northern and Central California had to have rolling blackouts and the threat of rolling blackouts for several days. And Gavin Newsom, who is as left-wing as they come, I mean, one of the early pioneers in gay marriage and so forth, he came out and said, it's time for us to, quote, sober up about green energy. He's basically admitted that this doesn't work. He wants to get there eventually. He calls it the transition to renewables. But he said, look, it's just not working for us because we need, this, these are his words, backup. We need insurance. The Green New Deal policies would take California's failed energy policies and apply them nationwide. But for the left, the goal is never to produce a better result. What's most important is that you have the right sentiment. And we have people in the party today openly proclaiming these transformative radical sentiments. When Barack Obama said he wanted to fundamentally transform America, he said it in late October 2008. It was five days to go before the election. It was almost a throwaway line. Joe Biden is running on that. He's actually saying that openly. We want to fundamentally transform America. His campaign ads talk about systemic racism. He's condemning the society that he's running to lead, and he's doing so openly. So you could say that we've made the same complaint before. I think what's happened is that the left has only become firmer in its convictions that only radical transformation is appropriate for the country. And I think that this is a, a long distance away from where the Democrats went in the right direction in the 1990s, where Bill Clinton triangulated, where Bill Clinton moved back toward the center 
to win elections. When he lost Congress in 1994, he won re-election in 96 by moving to the center. And he had been part of this decades-long project, the Democratic Leadership Council, that moved the party in a more pro-market direction so that Democrats were offering Americans a better run free market, a better run system. And that was a winning offer. That was an offer that won and could have probably continued to win had it not been for the impeachment, the Monica Lewinsky scandal, which I think made it harder for Al Gore to win after Clinton. But I think that the Democrats who are in control now took the opposite lesson from the Clinton years, that they were dissatisfied with welfare reform, for example. They were dissatisfied with moving back toward the center. And they want the opportunity to try out their radical policies. They're not going to be denied until they do what Democrats had to do in the 80s, which is consider a series of defeats. I think that Democrats could win this November. The polls certainly say that. And if they do, they're going to put into place radical policies that aren't just shifts in policy, but again, this, this question of the filibuster, adding new states. You know, when you add Puerto Rico and Washington, D.C., you're getting four new Democratic senators because they're not going to elect Republican senators. That makes it almost impossible for Republicans to win a majority in the Senate. So you're permanently putting Democrats in the majority and Republicans in the opposition. We're looking at a change in the system itself even before we get to policy. So this is a Flight 93 election in, in a much bigger way. And I think we're going to have a series of these elections until Democrats decide that this is actually not where they want to leave the country, that what works for the country is what worked in the past. And there are some Democrats who know it, but the ones in control are not on the same page. There have been a number of uh, studies that looked at the ideological composition of different uh, sections of Twitter, for example, and uh, they are usually pretty uh, authoritative, you know, uh, authoritatively or convincingly, I should say, um, that uh, like democratic politics Twitter or progressive Twitter is way the hell more progressive than actual Democrats and progressives themselves uh, are. Like Twitter is a microcosm, it's, it's a magnifying glass. Um, it makes things seem more left than they are. Uh, during the primary, which you covered, and which is the subject to your book, um, it seemed at various times that people, and I would specifically here name Beto O'Rourke, Kamala Harris, Julian Castro, and Kristen Gillibrand, all of whom had some moderateness in their past. Uh, there's some budget hawks among those people. There are very, Cory Booker, I would also add, um, in that, who, you know, uh, who, was, who you know, was a charter school enthusiast and, and different things. But it, during the, uh, the primary season, they all seemed to be running to win the Chapo Trap House vote on Twitter. They were, they were running super kind of woke, um, uh, hitting the cultural notes that seemed like uh, what Democrats were uh, clamoring for if you took um, the uh, clamor from Twitter seriously, they all tanked. That strategy objectively, I think, failed for all of them. They sat on their moderate pasts, they, they buried it, they changed their positions, and they went totally in that direction, and they all got squashed like bugs. Could it be that when we're thinking about and characterizing the left, the Democratic Party, um, we are dazzled by AOC, who is, you know, a, a very interesting, as you write in your book, of a, you know, a She's a compelling presence, right? She's got game for sure. Um, but we're overrating that because that's not the general um, uh, char uh, characteristics of the Democrats who tipped the House back into Democratic favor in 2018. They didn't run uh, an AOC 
campaign to take back the house. It was a lot of, um, and they didn't like talk about Russia. They didn't hit a lot of things that people who flipped weren't all AOC. Is it possible that we are uh, making the Twitter mistake when characterized the Democratic Party now, imagining it to be more radical and progressive than it actually is? I don't think so, because I think that the institutions of the Democratic Party have also moved left. And that's for a number of reasons. But there's another institution outside the party that also creates a left-wing environment. And you're right that social media tends to amplify those voices. It, it does on the right as well. But the mainstream media, the offline media, also play a role in moving the Democratic Party to the left. And MSNBC does so, although the difference with MSNBC is you know you're getting a left-wing network. So although it creates a forum for left-wing ideas, it's not really changing the agenda of the party. I think CNN has played a crucial role in moving Democrats to the left. And that's because CNN's brand is that it's the standard, that it represents the center of the conversation. And in 2016, ironically, they did a fairly good job of that because they had powerful pro-Trump voices as surrogates on the platform. Kaylee McEnany, for example, who's now the White House press secretary, was a regular on panels on CNN and gave her argument as best she could. She was often the only person or one of two people, Jeffrey Lord, who they dumped for making a joke on Twitter, was also there on CNN. So CNN was at least presenting a variety of perspectives, even if they were leaning left in their coverage. But since Trump won, CNN has basically been a cheerleader, not just for the Democratic Party, but for the left. And they've moved the Democratic Party in their direction. And I'll give you an example of that. I talk about this a bit in the book. But CNN thought it would be a good idea to stage a number of town hall events, not just with candidates. And I think that is valuable to have one-on-one -on -one town halls with candidates. But they had town halls around issues. And the town halls around issues are a problem because when you stage these town halls, they're usually produced in front of a live audience, at least they were before coronavirus, but they're produced in front of a live audience of activists on that particular issue. And they will reward with applause those candidates who best reflect the most aggressive position on their issue. So if you have a climate change town hall and CNN devoted seven hours of programming to its climate change town hall, you're going to get candidates competing for the approval of the audience, which is how people watching at home know whether you've done well or not. They're competing by offering more and more radical proposals. There are still today video clips circulating from those climate change town halls. Uh, Kamala Harris complaining about plastic straws, which has nothing to do with climate change, but is a very funny clip if you're on the conservative side. Uh, Andrew Yang talking about forcing people to drive electric cars. This is where the party really started going off the rails and CNN was pushing them there. The best example or worst example of this was the town hall they did on LGBTQ issues where in the middle of the town hall, there was a transgender woman, in other words, a, someone who's born male and now identifies as female, who literally snatched the microphone away from a woman who was trying to ask a question and stormed the stage with Don Lemon there and started accusing CNN of silencing black trans women. And it was this whole interruption. And Republicans watching this, or Americans watching this, even you don't have to have a political label on it, just thought this was unreal. This, this is... This is the Democratic Party that's completely lost control. They've given over, not just to the activist groups or the interest groups, but they've, they've given control to the crowd. And a year later, you see that. You see that where Black Lives Matter is 
defining the agenda for the Democratic Party. The first night of the Democratic Convention, we heard Democrats repeat, for example, the, the idea of peaceful protests. These have not been peaceful protests. They have, in many cases, been violent. And sp specifically, the protest that was referenced was the one outside the White House in Lafayette Square that was cleared out by the park police, not cleared out by tear gas, according to Attorney General Bill Barr, but cleared out by pepper balls and other things. But what's amazing to me is they called that peaceful. We had a journalist there from Breitbart News. Our video editor was there, and he was assaulted in that protest. We have video of it. We have, we have the whole thing. It was videotaped by other people. He was assaulted by people at that protest, and he wasn't the only one. They assaulted a Fox News crew. They assaulted other journalists. And the only reason that more people don't know that this was not a peaceful protest is I think journalists are afraid to report from some of these protests because they are violent. Uh, so they're defining the agenda of the Democratic Party, the, the demands of these groups, defund the police. I mean, this is a losing position. You know, something like 75% of the American people don't want to defund the police. And yet you have Democrats talking about that openly. Joe Biden says he doesn't want to defund the police, but just redirect the funding. Well, that's what defunding the police is. So I think that the media are in some ways complicit with this. They're more important than the party itself in, in pushing Democrats in a particular direction. You're right that social media is a big part of that. Twitter tends to amplify the most radical voices. But we also have some fairly mainstream institutions pushing people in that direction. And finally, just the last point I'd make is that for about 15 years, you've had the involvement in a very serious way of outside groups funding activism in the Democratic Party. I'm not just talking about campaign contributions and 501c4s in running ads during elections, that sort of thing that you have on both sides. But much of the activist Democratic left is bankrolled by left-wing foundations whose agenda is very far to the left. You have some of that on the right as well. Uh, you know, the ubiquitous Koch brothers, first they were a bad word on the left, and then they became a kind of bad word on the right because it turns out the Koch brothers actually have fairly liberal positions on criminal justice reform and on immigration. And so that made them a target for populist conservatives. But what's interesting is that there was an internal rebellion against that among conservatives, that the groups that were heavily funded by outside donors were essentially bypassed. I mean, Donald Trump came in and swept all of that away. In democratic politics, the foundations, you know, there's a lot of uh, consternation and controversy when you mention the name George Soros and that sort of thing. He's not the only person. There are a lot of people involved. Tom Steyer funding the need to impeach campaign. You've had a lot of money behind some very radical left-wing causes. And when people are paid to espouse certain views, it does shape the way the debate moves. And I just think there's this huge amount of money now recharged with all the corporate contributions to Black Lives Matter. You know, a lot of these companies have given hundreds of millions of dollars now to what are essentially political groups that aren't going to benefit the black community directly, but are going to go out there and advocate for causes. They're reshaping the agenda. So I think that there really has been a shift to the left and it's going to take quite a long time to unravel, if it can be unraveled. And I think the only way it's going to be unraveled is if Democrats can be convinced to walk away from the precipice. If they win this November, I'm not sure that they will. Um, you played a role on occasion during the primary campaign, specifically um, uh, in the Beto O'Rourke campaign, getting uh, uh, kicked out of an event. Talk about that. Well, Beto O'Rourke, his campaign anyway, had me ejected from an event at Benedict College, which is an historically black college in Columbia, South Carolina. And 
it was funny because I got to campus for the event and I was actually shown into the event by students because it was a little bit difficult to find my way around this campus and students couldn't have been nicer. They showed me where it was and I walked into a room and there were media at the back and very crowded room, about 200 students and journalists at the back of the room. And I went as far back as I could. I was standing alongside the wall and a guy came up to me wearing a Beto tag, one of the staffers. And he looked at my credentials, which I always wear. You know, I don't, I don't go into these things surreptitiously. And he said, Oh, Breitbart. All right. And he kind of put his hand on my shoulder and I was a little suspicious of that. He, he was friendly in his tone, but I knew that there was something going on. And I, at that moment, I took a selfie. I, I took a picture of myself in front of the classroom because I, I knew that if I was going to get thrown out, which was in the back of my mind could happen now that this person had sort of singled me out, I wanted to be able to prove that I was there. And uh, sure enough, a, a policeman came up to me and told me to leave. And as I started walking out, he said, no, take your property with you. So I went back and I got my backpack and everything. And I walked to the back and there was a campaign official there. And I said, why, why are you doing this? And he said, because you've been disruptive, which was just, I mean, you know, you know I was in a press conference with Beto O'Rourke the day before. Uh, there was nothing disruptive about it. I asked a question like everybody else. There was someone else at his event previously at the College of Charleston in the question and answer session who asked him a question about when does life begin? He was, it was a pro-life question. And I seem to remember that he blamed Breitbart for the question. We had nothing to do with that question. I don't know who the person was, but there was a pro-life person who came in and asked this question. And we posted the video maybe, I mean, we covered it, but you know, I had nothing to do with this person, could not have anticipated that was the question he would have asked. Uh, but somehow we, the campaign had it in its mind that, that we were there to ask questions that were you know, difficult. I mean, I, I don't know what they were thinking, but anyway, they made up this story that I was disruptive, which was ridiculous. And they escorted me off campus on, on pain of arrest, basically. The police officer said, you know, you can go willingly or we can do other things. And what was amazing about it was once we put out the story that I was essentially escorted off and kicked out of this event by Beto O'Rourke, everybody came to our defense. I mean, everybody. And, and I have to give CNN credit, you know, as much as we give them a lot of trouble over their political stances and, you know, we call them fake news, I guess. You know, and they call us other names, too. There's, there's no love lost between Breitbart and CNN. CNN defended Breitbart. I mean, they basically said, look, you can't pick and choose who gets to come to your campaign events if you want to be president of the United States. Access to the press means access to the press. Uh, you uh, obviously, Red November is kind of a, uh, a double entendre or has dual meaning. Um, you say that either what happens in November is either Biden wins and we have our first socialist president, so therefore red, or Trump wins and it's red of uh, MAGA hats and stuff. Um, right. So let's talk about Trump for a second. You make a, um, uh, the case or at least a mention that Trump is arguably the most conservative president since Ronald Reagan. Um, I seem kind of different than Ronald Reagan on some pretty key issues, uh, especially uh, free trade, um, uh, also his approach to immigration, quite different from Reagan. And uh, just, you know, in terms of so socialism itself, uh, the annual spending from Washington under Trump's watch has increased by almost a trillion dollars. This is prior to coronavirus. God knows what we're going to be spending after all is said and done this year, next year, and the rest of it. Um, what is conservative about that or even Reagan ask about any of that? Well, I think on immigration, I think it's an easier question because 
Reagan signed an, an amnesty in 1986, Simpson-Mazzoli, and it was clear that he was doing so as part of a compromise where the Republicans gave in on amnesty and the Democrats gave in on border security, but the border security never happened. And that's one of the reasons that conservatives are so dug in on immigration now, why Republicans rejected the Gang of Eight deal in 2013, because this problem of securing the border has never been addressed. Reagan wanted to secure the border, but it was part of a deal and the Democrats didn't fulfill their end of the bargain. So Republicans know that, and that's seared into the collective memory. So I, I don't really see a, a difference between Reagan and Trump on, on immigration. I think Trump would like to sign a deal, actually. He's, he's mentioned at several points he'd like to legalize the DACA recipients and so forth, but he wants a deal. And Democrats have avoided a deal, I think, believing that they can win all the marbles in 2020 and then do what they want without having to compromise on anything. Um, the question of free trade is an interesting one. I don't know that there is a conservative position on free trade. I think that both Reagan's position and Trump's position find some space in the set of conservative ideas. So the free trade argument is a conservative argument because conservatives believe that markets produce more socially desirable outcomes and trade is a global market. And we are better off certainly as consumers from having free trade because we can focus on producing the things we produce most efficiently and our trading partners can focus on what they produce most efficiently. And through the magic of comparative advantage, everybody gets more of what they want at lower prices. And I think you could argue that even with all of the difficulties of free trade with China, we have benefited as a consumer uh, industry or consumer market from having lower prices and access to more goods, cheaper goods, electronics, that sort of thing. But there's another side to that, which is, of course, the issue of preserving our economy, uh, not just in the sense of protecting industries that are facing new competition from abroad, but also protecting key industries like pharmaceuticals, which we now need very urgently, uh, defense contracting, high tech, and so forth. There's a strong conservative nationalist argument for keeping certain American industries protected. And Trump's favorite word on this is reciprocity. I think that that, that is not even a conservative or liberal principle, the idea that we treat other countries the way they treat us. For many decades, we didn't do that. We allowed the United States to be taken advantage of by China and others. And Trump is insisting on reciprocity, which I don't know, if, I don't consider ideological necessarily. So I think that uh, that's very important uh, and, and an area where I, I don't know that Trump and, and Reagan necessarily disagree, even though, as you point out, Reagan and, and many libertarian-minded conservatives moved more in the direction of free trade and Trump is uh, pulling back a bit and focusing on our national priorities. Uh, the question of spending is, is another interesting one. Both Trump and Reagan saw deficits rise uh, during their presidencies. Trump has seen deficits rise, as you point out, and that's partly because spending has increased. And with Reagan, the situation was very similar. I mean, Trump and Reagan both increased defense spending and could not persuade Democrats to decrease the other forms of discretionary domestic spending. So you have a widening deficit. You have this problem. Now, Trump was asked about it a couple of weeks ago. What are you going to do about it? And he said, we're going to grow our way out of it. And I think that was Reagan's approach as well, that fast economic growth would create more government revenues that would then cover the shortfall. I don't know that that's necessarily going to work. I don't know that raising taxes is the answer either. 
But one thing that is clearer now than was clear under Reagan is that the, the primary problem actually isn't even the domestic discretionary spending. The primary challenge when it comes to government spending are the mandatory items, the Social Security and Medicare and so forth. It's a huge chunk of our budget and it keeps growing. And there, Trump has gone against where the consensus in the conservative world was heading. Many conservatives like Paul Ryan and so forth were talking about reforming entitlements, reforming Social Security, reforming Medicare. And Trump came in right from the beginning and said, I'm not doing any of that. We're not going to do that. And he continues to say, we're not going to do that. And Democrats uh, allege that he's going to endanger these things. You know, he's, he's going to cut payroll taxes. So he's going to endanger Social Security. That's somehow not really working with Trump. He, he's come at it from a more populist angle. And I think he just realizes or believes that Republicans have lost the argument on this because whether Republicans are right or not about reforming entitlements, the public just doesn't like to hear about any changes to Social Security and Medicare. The only time it's ever worked was with Reagan and Tip O'Neill in the 1980s in Reagan's second term where Democrats sat down with Republicans and agreed to raise the retirement age for Social Security. Now that could happen in a second Trump term, presumably. Uh, it could happen with different leadership in the House, particularly because Pelosi, I think, has a very poor relationship with Trump. But I think it's a valid criticism from a conservative point of view to say that Trump has not tackled this issue, even though he promised to do so. It's just not clear there's any alternative. Democrats certainly aren't going to tackle it. Democrats feel liberated, in a sense, by the deficits because you don't see any plan on telling you what these things are going to cost, the Green New Deal and, and all this new uh, health care stuff. I mean, th there's, there's no concern about cost, and there's this attraction. One, one of Biden's advisors is one of the leading proponents of this thing called alternative monetary theory, theory which essentially says none of this stuff matters. You can just print as much money as you want, you know, spend as much as you want. It doesn't matter. And uh, so, so Trump, Trump, in that sense, by spending deficits only and, and not just printing money, uh, is, is the more conservative position. But, but from a traditionally conservative position, I think it's a valid criticism of President Trump. And it remains one of the enduring puzzles of American democracy, something we haven't figured out how to solve just yet. Uh, the 2016 presidential election um, threw a whole hell of a lot of political journalists and commentators for a loop. And not just the result, which surprised everyone. I think possibly Donald Trump himself was surprised by the result, but um, the lead-in to that, the fact that he won in the uh, primaries, the fact that Bernie Sanders was so competitive, he was very much of a long shot. Um, and, you know, we didn't expect Democrat, someone calling themselves a democratic socialist would get that close to winning the nomination back then. We think that differently now, maybe. Um, you covered the Trump campaign. Your last book was about the Trump campaign. Um, what lessons uh, did you learn about... Um, political coverage, uh, what we had been thinking wrongly. For me, it would be something like, you know, we overrated the, the uh, importance of public policy positions in uh, the consumer choices of the electorate, is the way I would put it. But how, what, what did you learn in 2016, and how have you applied that in your coverage here, and how does that reflect what's in your book? That's a great question. I think what I learned in 2016 was that what journalists think is outlandish doesn't necessarily make it so. And the media were convinced that when Trump opened his mouth on stage, he was talking absolute nonsense. The first time he made a really national speech, when the national media started focusing on him 
I think when he had secured the nomination, the reaction of the media was, oh my goodness, this man is nuts. This is just a stream of consciousness. This is just a ramble for an hour. What is he talking about? But if you had attended Trump rallies and stood in the room, you understood that he was speaking to the audience as one would speak at a bar to Trump doesn't drink, but it was, it was kind of intimate relationship he had with the audience. He wasn't reading a speech. He wasn't trying to impress them with his oratory. He was having a conversation with them where he was doing most of the talking, but there's a call and response. There's almost a sense he has of where the audience is and he goes off on tangents and he brings people into his confidence. It's, it's a, a way of establishing intimacy with the audience. That was one example. Other things that seem outlandish, I mean, let's take something that happened uh, only very recently. Uh, Trump is pardoning Susan B. Anthony, he announces on the anniversary of uh, the 19th Amendment passing. And I mean, you know, it, it's, it's no great help to Susan B. Anthony because she's been pardoned, but she's also been dead for quite a while. Uh, but, you, you know, you're not supposed to do that. I mean, why do you pardon dead people? He also posthumously pardoned Jack Johnson, the black heavyweight fighter who was wrongly uh, prosecuted for uh, violating segregationist laws, miscegenation laws. And that's, you know, that's sort of ugly part of our past. And Trump pardoned him posthumously. It has no effect on Jack Johnson or Susan B. Anthony, at least not one that we can measure. But he goes outside the rules and the message he's sending to people is often more important than the question of whether it actually is realistic to do or say what he's doing. And the message he's sending to female voters, I'm sure this is the reason he did it, is that he is defending their interests and that he values the history of women and women's suffrage in this country. It's not the first time he's mentioned women's suffrage. He mentioned it last July 4th as well, devoted a lot of attention to it at his 4th of July speech on the Mall. So what seems strange or outlandish to political observers, pundits, reporters may not always be that way. It depends on how it's being interpreted. And I can think of examples where Democrats have done things that conservatives have absolutely panned without understanding how appealing some of these things really are. I think, for example, conservatives underestimate the appeal of socialized medicine. You know, we talk about it and it's very abstract to us, but the idea of having a safety net for emergencies is extremely compelling. And Conservatives, even going back to Ronald Reagan, you know, understood this, but have struggled to really put it in policy terms. Democrats haven't really come up with a good way of doing it either. But the fact that they talk about it all the time really means that they've established a brand. They've almost branded the idea of, of health care as a safety net for themselves, which is a big loss for conservatives. And in a moment where Trump, you could argue, has the better economic policies because Joe Biden is promising to raise taxes and all this sort of thing, people may not be listening to the messages of the parties about who's going to turn the economy around, how well the stock market's doing. When you consider the job losses that have happened during coronavirus, there are something like 5 million people who've lost their health insurance because we tie health insurance, in many cases, to employment. So there are 5 million people who are now part of a, a you know, a new addition to a constituency already very worried about healthcare and needing a safety net. And I think Trump gets it. Trump, Trump has more of an ear to the ground than I think conservatives do and, and conservative pundits. But this is something you don't really hear talked about by many conservative writers, conservative pundits, you know, even Fox News, which has moved a little bit more toward the center in 2020, isn't really addressing the question of healthcare. And again, Something that sounds outlandish, like socialized medicine, 
Medicare for all. I mean, Medicare, we think of as being for old people. Why do you want something for old people to apply to everybody? But it's got a compelling appeal because it's addressing a real need. It's the, the message that candidates send when they support something like that is almost more important than whether you can actually do the policy or not. So I think that th those mistakes happen no matter whether you come from a conservative or liberal background. And that's the big lesson of 2016 is things that sound outlandish may not be, and they may be conveying a message that's deeper than simply the nuts and bolts of the policy that's being talked about. Uh, you finished your, writing your book in May of 2020. We have faster turnaround times for book publication these days, which is uh, <laughs> great uh, for readers and writers alike. Um, in the book, you talk about uh, Kamala Harris. You uh, assess that she ran basically the worst campaign in the primaries. Um, <laughs> now that she has been nominated as vice president, um, how does she fit into your thesis about Democrats moving in a socialist direction? Well, I think she reinforces that idea. I do think she's very far to the left in terms of policy. GovTrack.us, which measures these things, said that while in 2018, she was the fourth most liberal senator, by 2019, she's the most liberal senator. And they do that by evaluating the bills that senators sponsor or co-sponsor. She's been described by the New York Times as a pragmatic moderate, which, which is really a stretch. Conservatives have had a lot of fun with that because there's nothing really moderate in any of her proposals. And as far as pragmatism, it really depends, depends how you define pragmatism. If you define pragmatism as doing whatever it takes to get ahead, well, you know, yes, she fits that description. But if you describe it in policy terms, reaching out to the other side to solve mutually uh, vexing problems and come up with mutually beneficial solutions, she doesn't do any of that. I mean, she's got no bipartisan accomplishments at all, not just in the Senate, but really in her, in her career. So she really is a, a left-wing politician. I think that what made her appealing on paper, and one of the reasons I thought she would actually be the nominee, was that she checks all of the boxes. It's almost like she was manufactured to be a Democratic candidate. I don't mean to take away any of her actual achievement. I think it's very hard to get to this level. So she ran a very bad campaign in the primary. I, yes, I describe her as the worst candidate, worst campaigner in history. But you, know, you don't take anything away from someone who rises to this level. And she is not only accomplished at all three levels of government, local, state, and national. She's held office at, at all three, at least. Um, she also can speak to the questions of identity politics that are very important to Democrats. She is black. She's a first-generation immigrant. She's female. And those are three very important areas. She's also been important to the cause of gay marriage. I mean, she was California Attorney General, refused to defend Proposition 8, which is one of the reasons that gay marriage was legalized in the United States. That was more of a, an act of omission rather than commission. But she, she checks all of those boxes, and there's nobody in the Democratic Party who's really offended by her. That really seemed to be the key point. Now, she was taken down, in a sense, by Tulsi Gabbard, Representative Gabbard, in the primary at that second Democratic debate where she went after Harris's record as a prosecutor. But that was more a question of hypocrisy. It wasn't just that Kamala Harris had been an aggressive prosecutor, but it was that she was prosecuting marijuana offenders and then laughing about smoking marijuana herself. It was really a charge about hypocrisy. And I think it spoke to the sense that people have that Kamala Harris is, in a sense, Machiavellian. And that's the sense in which she's pragmatic, that she'll sort of do or say anything to move herself ahead. I do think she's a benefit to the ticket. I think she brings a lot of 
strengths that compensate for Biden's weaknesses. I don't think she is a very compelling candidate for vice president. I think so. In other words, she's good for the the number of votes she'll bring in, but I don't think that um, she really brings in any sort of governing expertise or experience. I mean, her, her experiences in government have, have largely been negative. And I think she has a long way to go before she can convince the country that she's really ready to run the country, ready to govern. And the way many people on the left actually see her is as a kind of tool of the party establishment. And there's some truth to that because right after 2016, she cultivated Hillary Clinton's donor network. Uh, she won her Senate seat in 2016, partly because Obama and the Democratic establishment in San Francisco and Washington came in very early and endorsed her. You know, this was an election where a Latina candidate had the potential to win for the first time. The Latino community in California has never really elected a major statewide candidate, even though they're so crucial in terms of the votes they provide to Democrats. And so they're kind of ready. They, there's a sense of impatience among Latino political leaders in California. When does our turn come? And Loretta Sanchez, who ran for Senate, is from Southern California, member of Congress. Uh, she was a very good candidate, but she lost partly because the entire establishment came in on, on uh, Kamala Harris's side. So I think the left is not quite trustful of her because she has that establishment support. And I, and I do think that's who she's going to be as uh, a, a candidate. She's, she's essentially there to remind the left that somebody shares their policy views and commitments, even if it's just in a kind of instrumental opportunistic way. But she's also there to reassure the establishment because in a sense, she is a, a, a product of the Obama endorsements and the Hillary Clinton donor network. So she reinforces the idea that there's this push and pull within the Democratic Party between the far left and the establishment. And I think the establishment has gone woke in the sense that they've been willing to accept a lot of the left-wing policies and positions as long as they can retain control of the institutions. We'll see if that actually happens over the long run. But I think Kamala Harris is really right at the center of that fight. Is there a, a tension um, with uh, your thesis and the seeming fact that the Democratic Party establishment always seems to win, right? They, they, they get their man, they get their woman at the top of the, you know, more so than do the radicals hold the levers of power? I think the Democratic Party establishment has been profoundly weakened. It's still there and it's still, again, very strong, but much less strong than it was. And I think that's because 2016 really shattered the confidence of the Democratic establishment. Hillary Clinton was supposed to win. And so much of the establishment was still controlled and is still very heavily influenced by the Clinton network that I think when that network was suddenly rendered obsolete, at least for a few years by Donald Trump, it lost control of the policy agenda. And I write about this in the book that the Bernie Sanders left understood why Trump, why Trump won better than the Hillary Clinton center left. Bernie Sanders and, and people like Michael Moore understood that Trump was appealing right to the heart of the Democratic Party constituency. He was appealing to working class voters. He was talking about trade. Uh, he was talking about immigration. Now, the Democratic Party uh, and, and Democratic Socialists like Bernie Sanders don't agree with Trump on immigration, but it is an issue they recognize. And in the past, Bernie Sanders has actually been tougher on immigration than he is today, precisely because unionized workers at one point were very much against having illegal 
immigration compete with Americans for jobs. So Trump was talking to the concerns of working class Americans in the upper Midwest, where Bernie Sanders had been particularly strong. The Bernie Sanders wing of the Democratic Party was not as surprised by Trump's victory. In fact, there's some evidence that many Bernie Sanders supporters, many, I mean, you know, up to 10% or so in some states, crossed over to vote for Trump. And I think they were ready to hit the ground running. They were the organizers of the so-called resistance. They were the organizers of the indivisible movement, the people showing up at town hall meetings and interrupting Republican congressmen. So the left was organized and ready to go. And, and for that reason, they were able to set the agenda. The establishment was chasing Russia collusion conspiracy theories and looking for some excuse, some explanation as to why this completely shocking event of November 2016 had happened. Once the left had stolen a march on them by moving ahead with a radical agenda, the establishment decided that that's where the action was. They were going to try to get a piece of it. And so that's when you see millions of dollars pouring in to groups like Indivisible. That's where you see Bernie Sanders and others really building a kind of campaign presence. You, you see uh, Tom Steyer joining it. All, all these people coming in with money uh, and climbing on board some of these left-wing, far left-wing causes. I think partly because they saw that that's where the action was and partly to control them. I mean, the, the word is that Wall Street is very happy with Kamala Harris's selection, not because she's got particularly pro-market policies, but because they think that she's pliable. They can they have an influence there because they've, they've donated. So I think um, the left has stolen the agenda, partly by being more organized and more sensible about what the 2016 election meant. I mean, Bernie Sanders and, and the left, they didn't like that Trump won, but they recognized that it was a legitimate election and that it happened for certain reasons. And then the establishment sort of played catch up ideologically. They're still, they're still paying the bills. So they think they still control things. And to, to a great extent, they do. I mean, we saw the power of the establishment right before Super Tuesday. They were able to marshal all of these Democratic candidates behind Joe Biden, who, who at one point seemed like the least likely. I mean, I, I thought personally that once the primary started, the most dangerous candidate to defeat Donald Trump was Amy Klobuchar, because she has very liberal positions but temperamentally is very moderate and is very, very competent on a debate stage. And I think the contrast would have been so jarring and she would have been so refreshing in a sense because she is different. She's also Midwestern. She comes from a state Trump is competing to win Minnesota uh, in 2020. Uh, but the party decided that they had to run with Joe Biden because of the risk that Bernie Sanders was going to win. And Amy Klobuchar peaked a little bit too late partly because of impeachment. I mean, impeachment kept her on the sidelines, kept her out of Iowa for six weeks. So I do think that the establishment is still is still strong. I, again, it, it, we'll, we'll see how this unfolds and whether Democrats win or lose in November, it's going to be the story of that struggle that continues over the next four to eight years. Uh, you were part of the Tea Party uh, movement, which was uh, arose kind of in response both to Barack Obama, but especially of Washington policy after the financial crisis uh, from both parties even. Um, the Tea Party movement has kind of dissipated or changed over time, doesn't have the same energy or, or focus necessarily. Um, look at your crystal ball here in the couple of minutes that we have left uh, and imagine the Biden victory that you were warning about uh, does take place. What happens to the Republican Party? Does it dig in on Trumpism and says, you know, that that was the way to go. How does the opposition look like, uh, given um, if your scenario plays out that way? I think two things will happen. I think the Trump movement will provide the core of the opposition if Biden wins. 
And I think that's because there will be a sense in which a Biden victory could only have come about through illegitimate means. And you're going to see that criticism on either side, no matter who wins, because given the controversy over vote by mail and given all of the various other things, I mean, I have a whole list of things that have happened that have been completely unusual about this election, but people are going to feel that it wasn't a fair election, no matter who wins. Also, the media have been so hostile to Donald Trump and the entire Russia collusion narrative, for example, went on and people won Pulitzer Prizes and there was never a reckoning about that. I think people on the right will feel that this was in a sense stolen and, and Trump in a sense then becomes a folk hero to the right. And, and so I don't know if that means people organize around his particular ideas. I do think it, it means people adopt his, his never say die, no holds barred kind of strategy, his tactics. I think you'll see a, a, a tougher more ready to brawl sort of Republican Party. Whether that appeals to enough American voters to win elections, I don't know. The other thing I think that might happen, and this is, this is rather sobering, I think that you might see a withdrawal, not just politically, but economically and, and culturally by many Americans, not just Republicans, primarily Republicans, but many others as well, because the cancel culture will have won. If Joe Biden wins after Democrats supported protests that in many cases were violent after Democrats lent their support to the removal of statues and rewriting of history and so forth. I think that there are many Americans who will simply decide it wasn't worth it it's, or it's not worth it. Uh, it's too much of a risk to start a business when your store windows are going to be smashed. It's too much of a risk to invest in uh, schooling for the inner city if all people feel when they come out of the schools and come out of these neighborhoods is resentment. I think you're going to see a withdrawal, a kind of retreat, if, if cancel culture is seen to have won. And I, I know that not every Democrat agrees with that, so I don't want to tarnish everybody with it. But the fact is the party has not really distanced itself from it. I mean, after the first night of the Democratic Convention, we heard nothing about victims of, of the violence or anything like that, very little in the way of support for police or anything. And, and I think that there's, there's something that's going to be shaken in the body politic that's going to be very, very hard to restore. I think that hurts Republicans more because I think they feel like they're targets of that more than Democrats do. But I think it's going to hurt everybody in the end if, if we have an election that's won by the opposition in these circumstances. That's where we're going to have to leave it. The book is read in November. The author is Joel Pollock. Joel, tell us where you, uh, people can find you uh, besides at bookstores. You can find me at Breitbart.com, where I'm senior editor at large. And you can find me on Twitter at Joel Pollack or on Parlor at Joel Pollack. And I would love to hear from people, hear their thoughts and kick around some ideas. This has been a great opportunity and I hope to come back for the next book as well. Thank you, Joel. And thanks everyone for tuning in. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. Subscribe, rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. You can also send us an email at podcast at c-span.org.